This afternoon, um, I want to address probably the single most fundamental issue that a Jew has to answer today. And I think this is a question that every one of us, on some level, has to, uh, has to answer. Right? We have to, especially if we're here in Israel and we're studying, or we're going back to America, or we're, going, we're Jewish people, we have to answer the following question. And I want to present it in the following context, just so we get an appreciation. Probably when we were younger, we heard Bible stories, and uh, we know that none of these stories are there for the sake of stories. They're all there to teach us something, right? Uh, these were pretty smart guys writing these stories and writing the parables. And so they have something they want to bring across. So let's start at the beginning, right? Okay. <clears throat> the first Jew is more or less seen to be Abraham, right? Whether he was or not, and, and what that means to be a Jew and how that works, well, we'll forget about that. What happened between Abraham and the, and the giving of the Torah, but fine. Abraham is more or less seen certainly as the first Hebrew, the founder of the Jewish people, Okay. Now, the Torah gives us a little background about Avraham's family. It says that Avraham was one of three boys, yeah, uh, Nahor, Haran, and himself. And Nahor, we know, goes and moves to Aram Naharayim. He becomes the, uh, uh, the ancestor of Rivka, who marries Isaac, etc. Fine. But uh, what do we know about his brother Haran? He makes a very brief appearance. All it says in the Torah is, Haran died al-pinei terach aviv. Al-pinei, and the face. Now Rashi, who is the classic commentary on the Bible, gives two explanations on this word in the face, on the face. It's either mipnei or lifnei. Lifnei would be before. He died before his father. And uh, the Zohar says that since the flood, no child ever died in the lifetime of his parent until Haran died. But then he brings a second explanation, Mipnei, because of his father he died. And he tells us the early history of Avraham. Because when Avraham is introduced, essentially, he's 70 years old, and God comes to him and tells him, you know, begin your journey to the Holy Land. So who is this uh, fellow Haran in the early life of Avram. So it tells us that Terach, his father, was an idol worshiper. He was not just an idol worshiper. He made gods. That's what he did for a living. He manufactured idols. How's business? Thank God. That's what he did. He had a god of whatever you wanted. You went to him and he made you a god to order. You wanted a business god. You wanted a money god. You wanted a love god. You wanted a basketball god. Whatever you wanted, he had one. He made it for you and he constructed the gods. He was the source of the gods, right? Abraham is a philosopher. And he starts saying to himself, gee, how could all of these gods be the gods? Maybe there's one god. And he slowly starts thinking, and he comes up with monotheism, which is going to be bad for business. But Terach doesn't know that his son is getting involved in philosophy. He leaves him in charge of the shop, so the story goes. And Abraham, with his newfound uh, philosophy, takes a big hammer and starts smashing the idols. Crash, smash, smash. He leaves this one big one. He puts the hammer in his hands. He sits down at the desk, minding his own business. He starts doing a crossword puzzle, which was very hard 3,000 years ago because it was on slate. If you made a mistake, you had to break it, but okay. He's sitting there. He's in the shop. He ignores everything that's going on. His father walks in. He sees his business ruined. He says, Abraham, what did you do to me? He says, Dad, it wasn't me. He says, all the gods began arguing. This one said, I'm the most powerful. This one said, I'm the most powerful. The big guy took the hammer and smashed everybody. 
He says, Abraham, they can't talk. They can't move. How could they have not happened that way? He says, they can't move. They can't talk. Dad, then why do you pray to them? Aha. Uh-huh. A devastating philosophical argument. Now, what would any responsible parent do at this point when their children present them with a religious argument that they can't respond to? Obviously, take him to the evil king Nimrod. How little things have changed in 3,000 years. But in any event... <laughs> So he brings him to the evil king Nimrod, who's in charge of all of the idolatrous cults in the world. And Nimrod begins having a theological discussion with young Abraham. And he says, why don't you worship the gods like everyone else? I worship fire. Fire is my god. Fire is power. Fire burns. Fire destroys. Fire is my god. He's a pleasant fellow. So Abraham's listening and he says, you want power? Power! Fire is power? Power! He says, well, why don't you worship water? It puts out fire. I worship water. Water is my God. Oh, water is so powerful. It even defeats water, fire. Water is my God. And he says, yeah, water, water, you know. And Abraham says, you know, if you really want power, then why don't you worship the clouds? They give the water. Clouds. Clouds are my new God. I worship the clouds. Clouds. And everyone says, yay, clouds. We love clouds, you know. And then he says, you know, I'm listening as you're talking here, Nimrod, and I think to myself, why don't you worship the wind? It blows the clouds. Nimrod says, I see where you're heading, kid. I'm going back to fire. Okay? And he builds a giant furnace, and he says to Abraham, my God is fire. You believe in this one all-powerful, invisible God? If my God is more powerful, let your God save him from my God. Ha, ha, ha. Right? Okay. The two gods grab Abraham, and they drag him over to the furnace. Scene freezes, and Rashi tells us it turns now to his brother Harun. Harun is watching this. He doesn't know what to do. He has been influenced by Avraham. They did Shabbos lunch together. They sang songs, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, you know. He fell into the whole, he got into this whole Jew thing, you know, and he doesn't know what to do. Uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, there's the big furnace. On the other hand, Abraham makes a lot of sense. He doesn't know what to do. So he makes the following statement. If, in fact, Abraham comes out alive, then I will declare myself for Abraham for monotheism, and I'll be on his side. But if he dies... I'm switching sides. I'm going over to Nimrod. Okay. Now they switch back to Avraham. They take Avraham. They throw him in the furnace and a miracle. He, he doesn't burn. His clothes don't burn. Nothing. He's engulfed in flames. He's fine. The whole crowd goes, ooh. Everyone's looking in. It's unbelievable, you know? You know? So he says, can I come out now? You know, so, okay, fine. You know, he climbs out. Nothing, nothing. Singed. A little smattering of applause. You know what I mean? Thank you very much. And now Nimrod is really upset. And he sees Haran smirking. And he says to Haran, his brother, whose side are you on? He says, I am a monotheist. I believe in the one God of Abraham. I too am prepared, you know, to uh, side with him. He says, grab him, boys. They take him, they bring him to the furnace, they throw him in, and he dies. The end. A hard story. A hard story. Now, the obvious problem, now remember, none of these stories are here to tell us stories. The obvious problem in the story is, why is it that Abraham gets thrown into the furnace and gets a miracle and is saved. And Haran is thrown into the furnace and dies. And before I answer it, I want to tell you how you have to approach whenever you study Torah. When you finish studying, whether it's a verse in the Torah, whether it's a commentary, whatever it is, a Jewish law, ask yourself, how does this relate to me? What's it got to do for me? If it's just in the world of ideas, it has no purpose. Is it? It's telling me something for my life. Right? Okay. 
So there's a lot of different explanations, but the explanation that has the most meaning for me is a story that took place when I was teaching a class on intermarriage. I've been teaching classes on intermarriage for the past 10 years, <clears throat> and they're very hard because it's a very emotional issue. And, you know, 10 years ago when I started talking, I said, how many people here would consider intermarrying? And a few hands went up. As time goes on, more hands go up. Now it's about half, maybe two-thirds of the room would consider intermarrying, you know, a regular secular group of people. So uh, I start giving my class on intermarriage, you know, to discuss certain points. So I walk into one group, and I start giving my class. Five minutes into the class, this girl bursts into tears and runs out of the room. Now I'm shocked, because it usually takes me about 15 minutes before anybody bursts into tears and runs out of the room. Five minutes was a record, you know what I mean? So I went to see her afterwards to see what I said that upset her so much so I could use it again. And... Um, <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, what's the matter? So she says, no, you don't understand. She says, I came from a traditional Jewish home. So what does that mean? Says, well, we went to synagogue three times a year. We had the electric menorah in the window. We had a Passover Seder. You know what I mean? More or less a kosher home. You know what I mean? Give or take, you know. A traditional home. We had mezuzahs on the door. I don't know what was written in them, but we had a mezuzah on the door. You know what I'm saying? Fine. Traditional. I went to Hebrew school. Wonderful. And I always knew I would never intermarry because my Judaism is so important to me. Fine. No, I never intermarry. My Judaism is so important to me. Fine. So, I, I, high school, I get involved in the synagogue youth group, become president of the youth group, you know. And, of course, I know I would never intermarry, you know, because I know that my Judaism is so important to me. Fine. I go off to university. I meet a nice non-Jewish guy in my class. We start dating. I know nothing will come of it because, you know, I know my Judaism is so important to me. And then, about two years into college... I find that I fell in love. And she gives me one of those looks. I fell in love. <laughs> like, I don't know how it happened. It happened by itself. You see? And I'm always struck by this because do you think you're going to find the person you find attractive and intelligent, date him for two years and grow to despise him? You know? Don't you understand there is that possibility of falling? I was like, and they're just shocked. I wasn't planning for this to happen. What did you think was going to happen? You know? <laughs> I give a class on intermarriage. I'm about halfway through the class. I said, how many people now would consider intermarrying? Almost no hands go up. I said, how many people here would interdate? Half the hands go up. I said, could you explain that to me? They said, yes, it's just a date. I said, do you know anyone who got married without dating? Okay? I said, any, any of your parents get married without dating? So a guy raised his hand, mine. I said, I said, your parents got married without dating? He says, yes, the Hasidic. I said... I said, what are you doing in an intermarriage class? You know what I'm saying? Like, you never see one of these scenes like, you know, do you, Christina O'Brien, hereby take Fievel Banish to be your, you know? That's right. When do I break the glass? No, we don't do that here. You know what I'm saying? You know? I said, get out of here. Go someplace else. You know what I mean? I, I got a Hasidic guy in an intermarriage class, you know? I said, any of you non-Hasidim, did your parents ever meet without dating? You know? So of course not. I said, in fact, your parents always love to tell those stories, you know? Your father was such a loser. None of the girls wanted to go out with him. I felt bad for him. Be quiet, Gladys, you know. I don't know. I thought he was kind of cute, but everyone said his nose was too big. Be quiet, Gladys, you know. So no one plans to fall in love. No one says, you know, to say to their room, and I have a date tonight. I think I'll fall in love with this guy and get married. You know what I mean? Of course, you know, you might fall in love, you know. So a guy, that's what I say to the group, I say, how can you interdate if you don't want to intermarry? So a guy raises his hand, and this is a, you know, you appreciate this, because guys are deeper and more sensitive. So uh, this guy raises his hand, he says, if I find myself starting to fall in love, I'll break it off. I said, invite me, I want to see this. <laughs> Christina, yes, I can never see you again. Why? Because I'm starting to love you. Well, isn't that good? No. When this was a shallow, meaningless relationship, and I was basically just using you, it was fine, but... <laughs> 
I'm starting to develop some real emotion, so I have to dump you like a hot potato. I said, I don't think even you are that shallow. And each guy in the room is saying, am I that shallow? Could be. I don't know. <laughs> So at the end, most of them conceded, yes, I have actual emotions. It was a beautiful moment. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm a story in a story. Let me move back. You know what I'm so this girl says to me, so I'm dating this guy for two years, and I fall in love. You know? I said, yeah. She says, so I know I would never intermarry because my Judaism is so important to me. Yes. So I told him that if he would convert, I'll marry him. Fine. So he goes off to a six-month conversion course, and he, um, uh, you know, they get themselves a joint uh, apartment, they open up joint bank accounts, they plan the wedding. Halfway through, he says, I can't go through with it. So what do you mean? Because I guess I didn't realize my Catholicism was so important to me. Um, I, you know, I, it's too hard for my family. If you want, you can convert to Catholicism. If you, if you want, I'll marry you the way you are, but I can't go through with it. And with tears in her eyes, she told me I broke it off. And I said to her, Why? She looks at me because the rabbi is not supposed to ask that question. She's supposed to say, good for you, daughter. You know what I'm saying? I said, why? She says, because my Judaism is so important to me. I said, what does that mean? So you know the holidays. I said, you can be intermarried and put the little electric menorah in the window. You can be intermarried and have a Seder. What does that mean? She says, I'm not sure. I said, so let me ask you a hard question. And it's a question Jews have had to answer too many times in their history. If somebody pulled out a gun and held it to your head and said, Jew, convert or die, what would you do? So she thinks about it, and she says, defiantly, she looks at me and she says, I would let myself be killed. And I said to her, Nebuch. That is a Yiddish word that has no translation. Nebuch. It's a pity, it doesn't do justice. I Nebuch, Nebuch. I said, you broke up with the man you love, you prepared to die for something, and you don't know what it is. You have no idea what it is. In my opinion, that's the reason that Haran died. Abraham went into the furnace because he said there's something in this world important enough to die for. Haran went into the furnace because Abraham went. And if you gain nothing else this afternoon than this, it's worthwhile. Don't ever go into a furnace. It's very hot. You <laughs> kill yourself. You understand? Very dangerous. You understand? And yet, if you ask the average Jew today, why are you Jewish? Because my parents were Jewish. And why were they Jewish? Because their parents were Jewish. And why them? Jewish, 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 Jewish. And you? I'm just following along. Why are you Jewish? What is the answer? Haran had no answer to that question. He just went into the furnace because Abraham did. Now I'll tell you a story that I think is a little scarier, personally. I was living in a major Orthodox community in the New York area. All of the kids went to the finest yeshiva high schools. Now, and I mean they were coming home 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night. You know, they were doing a full, you know, program of Jewish studies, Gemara, all kinds of stuff, you know, and and full secular studies. Very busy. This particular um, uh, synagogue had a youth program, like many synagogues have a youth program. The basic purpose of the youth program is to keep the kids out of the synagogue. Because if they show up during the services, then they tend to run around, and they make noise, and they disrupt, and then the parents can't hear themselves talk or pray. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, that was a slip, of course. I meant pray. And, um, and so you get a, you know, you got to do something with the kids. So the youth director hires a bunch of teenagers who hasn't pr- haven't prayed anyway in about 10 years. And they bring them downstairs, and they do puppet shows and tell them stories, and everybody's happy, right? But uh, you got to do something for the teenagers, too. you got to do some kind of teen program. But, of course, teenagers have no time. The only time they have is Friday night, right? So they make this program that's called an Oneg Shabbos or an Oneg Shabbat, depending, you know, where you're from. And uh, 
they, you know, bring all the guys and girls together for ostensibly a social event. But of course, we're a quality youth program, so we can't just have a social event. So we uh, have to have a speaker. Now, these kids are in school every day till like about six or seven. They don't want to hear a speaker on a Friday night. They're exhausted, you know. But you have to have some kind of a speaker. So who's the first speaker they bring in? Right? The rabbi. The synagogue. Because you know that if you talk, then he'll tell your mother you'll get a beating, right? Okay. So the rabbi comes in and uh, looks around the room with that rabbinic glow. (laughs) What a pleasure it is to see all the young people here tonight. You know, this week's Torah portion is a story of the ages. It is a story of courage and of pathos. <laughs> and a story that I believe will touch the lives of all the young people here. And one by one, everyone falls asleep. <laughs> now there's a sociological difference here between guys and girls, which are good to note. You see? Girls, when they are falling asleep in a speech, they pretend they're thinking. Right? They're polite. <laughs> See? Whereas guys have no problem. They just throw their head back. <laughs> and here someone falls asleep. You see a couple of polite people trying to keep their eyes open. The given, they fall asleep. Finally, the rabbi falls asleep. You know what I mean? The whole room is sleeping. About 10 o'clock, the mother wakes everyone up and sends them home. It was a big success. You know what I'm saying? But you can't bring the rabbi every week, you know. So you start looking for other speakers who are going to entertain the young people for the allotted amount of time, which is about five to six minutes. Now, not everybody. Obviously, if God would reveal himself as he did on Mount Sinai, he could probably get eight. But that's pushing. All right, I was kidding. All right, I was kidding. I was kidding. It's just a joke, all right? I'm sorry. I won't use it anymore. All right? This is Jerusalem, you gotta be careful, alright? Uh, <laughs> you, you call God here, it's a local call, you understand? Know I know, it's not long distance, you know? <laughs> anyway! <laughs> so, who do you get to speak? You know, so they bring in, um, oh, some doctor doing research on a horrible, debilitating disease. That's always fun, you know what I mean? Because he often comes in with pictures, you know? Look at the fungus growing, you know? Oh, it's Look at this guy, elephantitis. Is that disgusting? Oh, look, I have an actual hand here, right? Pass this around, you know what I mean? So that's good. That'll entertain the kids for about five, six minutes, you know? Oh, they'll bring a lawyer to come in and talk about some important legal case, and they know everybody will listen because they'll have to put them on their resume so everyone pretends like they're interested. You know, it's nice, you know? Oh, they'll have a local business leader come in and speak about business ethics and other oxymorons. But... Um, <laughs> But basically, you know, it's get, they're running out. You know, they're drawing on local material, local uh, talent. They're running out. So now it's about March. And the youth director had to get someone come about speaking about his recent trip to Romania. You know, the synagogues in Bucharest are fascinating. You can see the Muslim influence. And, uh, okay, forget it, you know. So I see the youth director that week. And he says, listen, what are you doing uh, Friday night? I said, nothing. He said, could you do me a favor? I said, sure, be my pleasure. He says, I'd like you to be the sacrificial speaker at the Onik. <laughs> I said, I'd rather give you a kidney. He says, you don't get off that easy. <laughs> I want you to come and speak, you know. So I said, all right, you know, what am I going to do? No one wants to listen. I know no one wants to listen. Just five, six minutes. Okay. So I got to work fast. Five, six minutes. Right? So they call it for eight o'clock. 
it always works the same. One kid shows up at 8 o'clock, you know, a boy named Myron, you know, <laughs> spends the entire evening in the kitchen, you know, refilling the potato chips, you know. Mr. Schwartz, should I bring out more potato chips? Okay. And I was like, everybody else waits outside because if you show up too soon, it means you have no life. You know what I mean? So it could be 40 degrees below zero and hailing. It makes no difference. They're all standing outside and they finally start shuffling in twos and threes, you know. It's one of those social evenings with teenagers, you know, one of the guys punches his friend. It's very interesting, you know. You know, girls are whispering to each other like this because they think no one can tell you whispering when you go like that. You know, okay, anyway, so it's one of these kind of... Okay, now they introduce the speaker, and I'm looking across a sea of excited faces. Okay, so i got to work fast. Now remember, these kids are all going to find yeshiva high schools. I said, my friends, I am offering you the following challenge. I'm going to put two buttons in front of you. Push the button on your left... And you will wake up a nice Christian kid in a nice Christian family. You will never have been Jewish. Push the button on your right, you'll stay the way you are. Okay? Button on your left, you'll be Christian. Button on your right, you'll stay Jewish the way you are. I said, my guess is that 60 to 70% of the kids in your school would push the button on the left. They looked at me, they said, Rabbi, how can you talk to us that way? Everyone would push the button on the left. So, okay, so it's a Friday night. I'm in a room full of Jewish kids going to yeshiva who would all rather be Christian. So I said, okay, why is that? Why is that? Now, that's not fair because I'm asking a high school kid to think, which, frankly, we don't train them to do, right? That's not what high school education is designed to do. Education is designed for you to figure out what the teacher is saying and repeat it back, preferably in exactly the same words. And the better you do that, the better mark you get, you know? So that by the time a kid is in high school, they can look someone up and down and know exactly what they're supposed to say. Right? I was once in a school where, if you can believe it, a kid was cheating on a test. I know, it's hard to believe. I know, I know. I, I was as shocked as you were. Anyway, so the principal storms in, you know, indignantly and says, I can't believe people are cheating on tests. Do you know why you shouldn't cheat on tests? Uh, yes? Because we're only cheating ourselves. Oh. <laughs> the sincerity was so, oh, it brought tears to my eyes. Uh, here was a fellow who really inculcated the lessons of morality. You know what I mean? Like, you know. So, I say to them, okay, uh, you know, I said, to, you know, you all want to be Christian. I said, why is that? So they think, oh, no, what does he want us to say? You know, they can't figure out an answer. So I said, it's easy. You hate being Jewish. Now, you're not allowed to say that. It's true, but you're not allowed to say it. So a girl raises her hand and she says, it's not true. I love being Jewish. Shabbos is the only day I get to sleep. <laughs> now, that should tell us a lot right there. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, I once heard uh, someone trying to explain to someone where they should keep Shabbos, right? So Shabbos is not so bad. Gives you an idea where we're heading, okay? Shabbos is not so bad. You know, you wait for your dad to come home from shul, and then you have supper together with the family, and that's not so bad because dad falls asleep at the table reading the Jewish press. And, um, and then, you know, in the winter, you can get like 14 hours of sleep. Oh, it's like being dead, you know what I mean? You go right to your bed and you just lie there, you know, until the drool comes out on the pillow, you know. And you're not even used to it, you know. You, you wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and you have to make yourself go back to sleep, you know. You keep turning over the pillow looking for the cool side, you know. You know, and then you get up about 10, 10.30, you go to shul, you know, you see your friends, you talk a little bit, you come home, you have lunch, you play some Monopoly. Before you know it, it's over. Now, what a spiritual adventure, my gosh, you know. So she said to me, I love being Jewish. Shabbos is the only day I get to sleep. I said, look, I don't know how to break this to you, but Gentiles take the phone off the hook and take a nap. She was devastated. She was sure that only observant Jews nap. She, she was, I just pulled the rug out of her entire existence. You know what I mean? I said, good thing I didn't tell her about chili. I'm sure she thinks we're the only ones with chili. You know what I mean? I said, what is the Eli's like about being Jewish? 
I know, because there are so many restaurants you can't eat in. That must be it. No, no, I know. There's so much stuff you can't do on Saturday. I said, okay, you convinced us. We hate being Jewish. Okay, fine. I said, then why are you doing this? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, you know what? I'll answer the question. You know why you hate being Jewish? Okay, here comes the rabbi speech. Your parents hate being Jewish. Dead silence. In the kitchen, you hear a glass crash. Psh, you know then? <laughs> Mom was listening in, you know? I said, I'm serious. What do your parents like about it? What does anybody like about it? Why are you doing this? And they all had to admit. They're sitting there in, in a yeshiva high school, studying Jewish subjects half a day, and they can't answer this question. Why am I Jewish? Why am I doing this? <coughs> So I said, come on, think, there must be something. You know, okay, we have to serve God. You have to serve God? Yeah. God needs you? Yeah. Really? I always thought he was infinite. Well, that's what they always told us. We have to serve God. I said, okay, why do you have to serve God? Come on, take it a step further. Why? I think, why are we Jewish? Oh, I know, because otherwise God will burn us in hell. Now, oh, there's a positive, uplifting thought. Finally, something I can relate to. You understand? Right. You have to be Jewish, otherwise God will burn you in hell. I once said to somebody, I said, explain to me what the world to come is like. You know? He says, well, you know, if you're good, you go to heaven, yeah. And you sit on a cloud, yeah. And you play a harp. I said, uh-huh. I said, uh, you like harp music? Uh, not particularly, you know. In fact, whenever a harp would come on in those Marx Brothers movies, I would fast forward. You know, I said, okay. I said, so what are you going to do up there? He says, well, I'll, I'll get an electric harp. You know what I mean? And put my halo on sideways. You know what I mean? You know, rocking on cloud nine. I said, okay. So that's if you're good. And if you're bad, if you're bad, you go to hell and God burns you forever. So okay. I said, you comfortable with that picture? He says, yeah, that's what I've always heard. I said, you know what that's like? I said, it's like a parent comes to their kid and says, listen, I really want you to have a clean room. It's better to live clean, have a nice, healthy room. If you clean up your room, I'll buy you a new outfit and I'll take you out for dinner. And if you don't, I'll break your arm and beat you to your bloody. <laughs> I said, what would you do? So I called social services. The man is out of his mind. You know what I mean? I said, but that's how you view God. If you're good, you go to heaven and you sit on a cloud. And if you're bad, they're burnt in hell forever. I said, you're praying to our dysfunctional father who art in heaven. You know what I mean? And now, where do you see this best? And this is the, I, I have no reason, this is the major reason for assimilation. Everybody goes to synagogue with Shunyam Kippur, right? Oh. Now, those of you who are into cantoricals, I, I apologize in advance. I grew up in the 60s. We just weren't into that. You know what I mean? It was, wasn't quite the stones, you know? And uh, I'd go to synagogue. My dad would bring me there. I'd have to wear a suit, you know? And we'd stand there in synagogue. And the cantor would be up front going, ah, 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 <laughs> and the choir would come in, amen, amen, ah, you know? I kept moving my foot from one side to the other. Oh, my gosh, how much longer? Can I go to the bathroom again? You think my dad noticed? You know, I, was, uh, I used to sit there and count the pages, 800 pages. I'm never going to make it. You know? <laughs> I finally realized that half of them were in English. I said, oh, thank God. You know, that was the first sincere prayer I ever said on Yom Kippur. It's only 400 pages. We'll be out of here in no time. You know what I mean? Let me see. He's been on this word for 10 minutes. Um, according to my calculations, we're not getting out till Hanukkah. You know what I mean? Like, you know. But I was a kid, and I basically figured that, you know, if you could just stay in synagogue long enough so God felt so bad for you, he forgave all your sins, you know? But I remember thinking one year, look, God, I didn't kill anybody. Maybe I could leave early, you know what I mean, you know? But no, no, we sat there, you know, listened to the candle. You know, fine, you know. 
But then you get older and you start reading the prayers and you can read the English and you follow along, you know what's going on. And then it's much worse. <laughs> much worse. <laughs> when it was just endurance, it wasn't so bad. Then you start to read it. You come to Nisana Tokev. And I knew this was an important prayer because my father would always say, where's the place? And I had no idea where the place was because uh, I couldn't read Hebrew. But uh, they had one of those things that told you the pages, but it always came out during the World Series. And so somebody would always put up the score, like 4 two, one you know. So you didn't turn the page unless someone got a hit, you know what I mean? So uh, my father shows me the place, the cantor gets up, the choir tunes up, the sound of Tokev, the choir, the cantor starts to sing. Who will live and who will die? Now, there's a subtle message there, and I don't know if you caught it. It's very subtle. In essence, of course, what he's saying is, Someone might live, but you're going to die. And the choir, die, die, die. Now, it doesn't end that quickly. Now, you get to choose the way you're going to go. You understand? And they give you a list, you know. Who will die by fire? And who will die by water? And you see everybody thinking, well, fire's kind of hot, you know. I could probably tread water for a while, you know. Who will die by storm? And who will die by sword? I don't know, what are they doing with the sword? And, uh, what kind of storm? I saw a twister, that was cool. <laughs> who will die by earthquake? And who will die by pestilence? I don't know, what is pestilence? <laughs> I will take the earthquake, Bob, you know what I mean? But the message of Yom Kippur is more or less pretty straight, and that is, you are going to die a horrible death this year because God hates you because you are evil. Unless you fast and debase yourself on Yom Kippur and crawl on your belly, and then you can get off with a serious illness. You understand? So people go, oh, Yom Kippur, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Please don't bake me. Please don't fry me. Please don't fry him. Please don't bake him. Please don't bake me. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. <laughs> Considering that most Jews go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, I'm not surprised that so many people are dropping out. I'm shocked that so many people are still here. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is the message. Guilt, hell, fire. You know, and yeah, yes, the average Jew, the average observant Jew. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And so the average person's going around with guilt, with, with, with uh, you know, you have to, you have to. Why? Because my parents made me. Why? Because their parents made them. Why? Because it's a tradition. Tradition! Tradi- and we're up on top of the roof. Yeah, no, 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 you know. Give me a break. This is lunacy. This is absolute lunacy. And this is what the average Jew, if you ask a person, why are you Jewish? He'll either tell you, I don't know, or because my parents are Jewish, or because I don't want to burn in hell. There's got to be more. You understand? We Jews have been accused of many things. Stupid was not one of them. You understand? If we're around for 3,000 years, there's got to be a reason. So I'm going to tell you two lines from probably one of the most important books that have been written in the past 500 years. Um, It was written by Reb Moshe Chaim Luzato. It's called Mesilas Yesharim. It has been very poorly translated into English called Path of the Just, which, um, again, some people can get through it. Most people can't. The English is very difficult. Uh, there's a better translation, though still not you know, anywhere near the original, by Rabbi Torsky called Lights Along the Path, which is better, but still not up to the original. It's really worthwhile to learn this in the original. Um, it's, a, it's an excellent, excellent work. And I'm going to give you the first two lines. The purpose of this book is to teach you how to become perfect. That's what it was written, for those who need it. And uh, it outlines for you, step by step, how to become perfect. You know, how to start thinking about your life and all kinds of interesting things. Nobody learns how to plan their life. We're taught to plan our life to about age 40, age 45. That's it. 
right? Get married, go to school, you know, make money, you know, have a couple of kids, you know, and then, I was graduating high school. I was taking off a year to learn in Israel for a year. It was uh, 1975. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> anyway, I find more and more I make reference to things that took place before anybody was born. So anyway, so, uh, you know, when you tell a joke and only the senior citizens are laughing, like, you know, it's a problem. Anyhow, <coughs> so I came, I came uh, to learn in Israel. I was taking off that year before uh, university. And I said to another friend of mine, I said, you're going to take off a year and study in Israel? He says, I can't, I'm in a rush. Like this, his hands were shaking. I'm in a rush. I said, goodness, what's your rush? He said, I've got to hurry up and get my B.A. I said, what happens then? And then I get my M.A. And then, and then I start my career. And then, and then I make a lot of money. And then I house a car a condo. And then I get married and have a few kids. And then uh, get old. And then I die. I said, okay. It's a good plan. Takes you from the beginning to the end, you know. Spans the whole spot. Oh, terrific. I said, how different would that be if you took off a year first and learned in Israel? How different? So you'd get your B.A. a year later. You'd get your M.A. a year later. You'd, you'd start your career a year later. You'd get married a year later. You'd die a year later. I said, in fact, I guarantee it. I figure, what's he going to do? Sue me? You know, go, go prove it. You know what I'm saying? You know, I said, uh, I said, but that one year will give you an understanding of what life is all about and what you're doing here. The guy's listening to me, and then he, like, he snaps and he goes, no, I'm in a rush. I'm in a rush, I'm in a rush. So everybody's in a rush. We've got to go hurry up to get to about 40 or 45 so that we can have what is now an American institution, our midlife crisis. And everyone rushes to get to about 40, 45, and they wake up one day, they're an accountant, they're married, they've got three kids, they live in the suburbs, and one day they wake up and they say, I hate accounting. I don't like the suburbs. I'm not that crazy about my wife and kids. I think I'll buy a sports car. <laughs> You know, and they do their hair, you know, and they buy like a silk shirt and they open it up with their little grizzly gray chest hair sticking out, a little pot belly, you know, and they're like, hey, babe, how are you, you know, and everyone's thinking to themselves, pathetic, you know, <laughs> what happened to Herbie? He's having a midlife crisis. Okay, it's all right. He'll grow out of it. Everyone does, you know, this is his midlife crisis, you know, trust me, Herbie, if you ever find, you know, what are you doing, Herbie? I'm looking for myself. So, well, if you find yourself dressed like that, trust me, he'll going to walk the other way. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Nobody's interested. But it's not Herbie's fault. Herbie did what everyone told him. Go to college, make money, get a career. And then, and then wait to die. Poor Herbie, he lived. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He didn't die yet. So he's got nothing to do for the next 40 years except sit around, you know what I mean, and watch TV. Or complain about his aches and pains. He's got nothing left to do, you know? So Jackie Mason says, every, every Jew, this is what they do for entertainment, is they complain about their pains. You know what I mean? So says, there's no Jew can get out of a chair. They always get up and say, oh, something's pulling over here. I don't know what it is on my neck. You know, that's it. So you go, for, till about 40, 45, you make a lot of money. The next 40 years, you spend going to doctors. I don't know, I got a pain, I got something pulling, you know. Give you something to do for entertainment. In between, you watch TV, you know. This is it. This is it. This is all life has to offer. Says the Masil Sasharim, I can't talk to you about religiosity. I can't talk to you about morality. I can't talk to you about anything until you answer this question, why are you alive? And bear in mind, and I have this opportunity to talk to people often in their 70s, and I hear the same sort of a sigh. Oh, if only I had lived life differently. You know, youth is wasted on the young. I wish I knew then what I know now, you know. And, uh, you, know, and you think to yourself, well, why didn't you? I guess I never really thought about it. Of course not. Most people don't think about where they want to be at the end of their life. Anybody thinks where they want to be at the end of their life? No. But that's what the Basil Sharma is saying. Before I can talk to you about what to do in life, you've got to be able to think to the end of the story. 
A, a person who can only think about, you know, whether I'm going to have a date tomorrow night, isn't able to think about my 50th wedding anniversary, you know, to plan ahead. What do I want my grandchildren to be like? You know, here is, here is one of these, these, these great, uh, uh, one of these great, uh, you know, hypocritical things that, that I hear from people all the time. It's one of my favorites, you know. I'll meet somebody who's like uh, thinking of getting into marriage, you know, and they say, but we'll bring the kids up Jewish. So why? Why? Well, I think Jews are very important. Oh, yeah? So what if your kid wants to intermarry? I would discourage it. You would discourage it? You're intermarrying? Well, that's different. Hmm. <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for here? Hypocrisy. <laughs> well, who are you kidding? You understand? But people don't know. People have never thought it through to the end. What do you want out of life? Where do you want to be when you're 70, 80, 90 years old? What do you want them to write on your tombstone? A scary thought, but I mean, you've got you to start planning that now. What do you want them to say at your eulogy? Maybe you start jotting down a few thoughts because they may have nothing left. You know what I mean? What kind of life do you want to have led? People wait to see. I, I, I teach in a seminary. I told them this one line should be written down, should be framed, should be embroidered because I think it is so true. Most people live the life that happens instead of the life they want. It is so true. Who decides? Oh, now I'm going to do this. People just wait and see where they end up. I don't know if this is what I wanted, but this is where I ended up. I don't know if this is really the guy I wanted to marry, but we went out so long we ended up getting married. I don't know if this is what I want. I don't know. I don't, just happened. So you have to go to the end of the story. You've got to go to the end of the story and decide. What do you want? What do you want? And then you can work how to figure out how to get there. But if you don't know what you want, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. A person stops you and asks you for directions. Yeah, I'm not sure what to do. Should I take the Long Island Expressway or should I take the Northern State Parkway? I'm from Long Island. Yeah? The Long Island Expressway or the Northern State Parkway? So I don't know where you're going. I'm not sure. Oh, then take the Northern State. You know what I'm saying? You know? At least you don't know where you're getting, but you'll get there faster. You know what I mean? Like, you know, ask me a question. Give me directions in life. I don't know where I'm going. So what do you want out of life? First line. And here's what he answers. This is the reason to be Jewish. This is what the Ramchal answers for us. Yeah, you have to know why you're alive. And the reason we are alive, he says, The reason we were created by God is to delight in God and get pleasure from the divine light because this is the greatest pleasure and delight of all the pleasures that there are. I read this to a group once. Shiva guys, I said, what, what did he say? Why were we created? He says, to serve God. I said, no, he did not say that. Oh, oh, you're right. To get pleasure from the divine light. No, he didn't say that either. Listen again. We were created to get pleasure from God and to enjoy the divine light because that is the greatest pleasure and delight from all the delights you can find. Yeah, yeah, he says the divine light. I said, no. You're focusing on the divine light, because since you don't know what it is, you figure, what's the big deal? I'll never miss it. You understand? No, I said, I missed the divine light. No, you understand? I said, that's not what he said. He said, the purpose is to get this pleasure from God, because that is the greatest pleasure you can find. Period. The Ramchal is throwing down the gauntlet for us, and he is challenging us, and he is telling us something that we are all old enough to know now. And that is, you cannot have it all. We'll realize this more as we get older. But you cannot have it all. That's a myth. You cannot travel the world and spend your time in various exotic locations and also be a community builder. You can't. You want to build a community, you're going to have to be there. You cannot be a workaholic like the guy in the firm and spend all that time in the office and also spend time with your kids. You can't. You're going to make a choice. 
Either you're going to spend time with your kids, or you're going to spend time, you know, a, a reasonable amount of time in your business, but you can't have it all. You're not going to be able to hoard your money, you understand, and also be a giving, charitable person. You can't. You're going to make a choice. You're not going to be able to flip from relationship to relationship and also have a loyal marriage. You can't. And the reason that people make mistakes in life, and I'm not talking about by my standards, I'm talking about by their standards. The reason people make mistakes in life, thank you, the reason people make mistakes in life is because they don't know what's really important to them. So therefore, if I know that my marriage is important to me as an absolute value to me in my life, then I'm going to turn down that opportunity for the office affair because it's just not worth it to me. But if on the other hand I'm not sure and I'm just making the next immediate decision, my goodness, you see people who work out, and, and I think that's a very important thing and I encourage it. Because uh, you know what I would look like if I didn't exercise. But in any event, you know, you see people who are like exercising, you know, and they're going there, they're working and killing themselves. Why? You know, because they've made a, a cheshman, they've made an account. It's more important to them to be able to look like uh, they're two-dimensional than it is to, uh, you, know, have, uh, you know, have a comfortable life. They've made a choice. Uh, a person is going to turn down the dessert at the end of the meal. It's not because, you know, they want to cause themselves suffering. It's because they want to fit into that wonderful anorexic outfit that they bought. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, their size uh, half. You know what I mean? So they're, you know, uh, they're going to turn down the dessert. They're making a choice. And a person might just eat the dessert. And sometimes you hear this great line, I'm going to hate myself in the morning. Then don't do it. Then don't do it. Make a decision of what's important to you and follow through. But it's true. Most people do hate themselves in the morning for one reason or another. Because they live life without knowing where they're going. Suddenly they end up someplace. This is the great tragedy. Says the Masil Sasharm. The reason we were created is because you cannot have it all. And life is going to be about choosing. Not between bad and good, but between good and better. Choosing. You're going to go to a smorgasbord, you couldn't possibly eat everything. You're going to have to choose what you want. I've been to smorgasbords, I see people plan it out like a military attack. First I'm going to go over here, then I'm going to have a little of that, then I'm going here, just take a little bit, this, I'm going to take this, they want to get in as much as they can, but all of it they can't. They're going to have to make a plan, what do I want? People come to Israel for 10 days, I'm here for 12 years, I haven't seen all of it. And I said, they come for 10 days, we're going to run up north, we're going to jail down south, we're going to go to the east, go over here, go over here, look at this, here's a ruin, beautiful, right, run over here, someone important is buried there, good, okay, jump, 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 and they run around and see Israel in 10 days. <clears throat> can't have it all. Gonna have to make some choices. Have to make some choices. Says Masil Susharim, life is going to be about making important choices. And I want you to know what Judaism says. We were not created to serve God. We were created to have the best time. The best time is going to be having this relationship with God. That's why it's there. God did not create us to serve Him. He's very fine. He can take care of Himself. Okay. He's got, you know, if he gets stuck, he's got a few angels to help him out. You understand? God doesn't need us. God created us to be able to have the greatest time by getting close to God. That is the reason we're created. <clears throat> I've said this before to other groups, and uh, the more I say it, the more convinced I am that it's correct. I have no question that in the past 2,000 years, maybe longer, but certainly the past 2,000 years, you are the single most important generation the Jewish people have seen. Because my generation, maybe even your generation, you ask somebody why you're Jewish, they gave you the answers I gave you. Because my parents were Jewish, and their parents were Jewish, and their parents were Jewish. I was speaking in Cape Town, South Africa, to a group of 11th graders. 
at a uh, at a seminar, and I was on a panel with a Catholic teacher from the school, a Muslim teacher, a secular Jewish teacher, and myself. And each one of us had to answer these questions: What is Judaism? Right? What did Judaism mean? Yeah. What is it in my life? All these kind of things. So everyone gave their different answers, and I said the following: I said either it's real, and it's the best way to live. Otherwise, you know, ditch it. Ditch it tomorrow. So, a fellow from the board of uh, directors, board of education, raises his hand, says, Rabbi. Because, you know, in South Africa they have no vowels, so it's a little difficult for them. <laughs> you ever hear someone? Who, who's here from South Africa? So, so you see if I'm right this one. I came from South Africa. Just a few days ago. And I have no vowels. I can't pronounce it. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> Janisburg? Janisburg. Don't fake it. Okay, it's very, be proud of your Afrikaner's heritage. That's good. Anyway, so, um, so he says to me, I'll translate. The rabbi says, I have to object. He says, You're being too hard on these kids. I grew up here and I went to uh, the same school as them. And then I left, and I went off. And then, you know, I eventually, uh, you know, in my middle ages, I decided to start coming back to synagogue. And I would go on Yom Kippur, and I got back involved in the synagogue. You're being too hard on these kids to make them decide now. I said, sir, you'll forgive me, but you and I come from a different generation. These kids are either going to have a good reason to be Jewish, or they're not going to do it. And every head in the room started to nod. That's right. Because when your kids come to you and say, Mom, Dad, why be Jewish? It's going to have to be something better than dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. It's going to have to be something better than tradition, fiddle on the roof. You understand? Gefilte fish. It's going to, you're going to have to come up with a good answer. So I had secular people who were on programs I ran during the summer, and they eventually come over to me and say, you know, Rabbi, you're the biggest challenge to my secular lifestyle. I said, really, which class did I give? They said, it was none of your classes. That made me feel good. They said... Um, it just, I, I, I'm troubled because I know that I'm living a secular lifestyle. I can do whatever I want and I do. And you're living this restrictive lifestyle. And yet I can't help but feeling that you have more fun in life than I do. I said, kills you, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be sensitive when you're a rabbi, you understand? Yes, of course. <laughs> you understand? I said, 100% right. The reason that I do this is because it's enjoyable. It's the best way to live. You understand? If I didn't think this was real, and if I didn't think this was the best way to do it, I wouldn't do it. Period. I didn't grow up uh, in Brooklyn. You understand? I grew up on Long Island. You understand? My generation, uh, you know, uh, my friends' kids are all going out and, uh, you know, intermarrying, you know? No problem. I said, I'm doing this because I think it's better, and it's more enjoyable, and it's nicer. And I, in one week, met three people. This, is, uh, to me, was an astounding thing. It's happened to me a number of times in my lifetime. But three people in one week who came over to me and said, Oh, Rabbi Olavsky, I don't know if you remember me. I was at your house for Shabbos three years ago, two years ago, five years ago. You know what I mean? And after that, I decided to become from. I said, Why? <laughs> Why? He says, Because I never saw anything that enjoyable in my life. And I said, I want that in my life. If we can say to our children, yes, we have something better. I always love this from parents. How do you keep your kids at the Shabbos table? I don't. It's a privilege to sit at the Shabbos table. I'm there because I want to be there. You know? And if my kids are there, it's because they want to be there. And if they want to sit in the living room and play backgammon, they'll sit in the living room and play backgammon. But it's an opportunity. It's an honor. It's a, you know, how do you get your kids to eat ice cream? I don't. If they want to eat it, they eat it. If they don't, they don't. And if not, they're missing out on something wonderful. I don't have some burden that my parents passed on to me. I want to drop on my kids. 
It's got to be something beautiful and wonderful. And if we don't have that, we don't have an answer to that question. <coughs> when my, uh, after my father passed away, so uh, my, uh, I was the rabbi of the family, so they asked me to write uh, something for the, uh, for the tombstone, for the matzeva. And uh, I'm a Kohen. I had never been in a cemetery before. This is the first time I was in a cemetery. And I looked across and I saw all these tombstones all had the same thing written on it. Beloved husband, father, grandfather. Beloved husband, father, grandfather. It's like everybody was the same. Just changed the name. And I said, I want to try to capture my father on what I write. And they wanted to put up the stone already and they kept rushing me. No, when's going to be ready? We're going to be ready, you know. I said, I'm working on it, working on it. And finally someone said, how long does it take to write a tombstone? I said, it takes a lifetime. You know, I said, you've got to give me a little time to take a lifetime and put it down on paper. I finally wrote this poem. They felt it was a little long. One of my brothers wanted to just get one of those electronic things that just keep going, you know what I mean? Like, you know, just keep me heel eyes on alarm. You know? <laughs> they finally uh, bought an extra large stone, and my mother says, listen, when I go, just write mom too. You know what I mean? Like, you know. But... Uh, as Kohanim, we don't go to the cemetery. My, my mother, though, went to the cemetery before Shoshana. She called me up. She said, I have to tell you. She said, I looked around, and, and when I came to Dad Stone, it was dead. It was dead. You know, you, you really captured him. It wasn't just everybody else. <clears throat> they say about certain things when it's not important. It's not etched in stone. This is etched in stone. At the end of our life, what do we want to leave behind? How do we want to be remembered? What's the life we want to have led? Let's decide now what the life is that we wanted to have led so we can start leading it now. What's the reason to be Jewish? Well, how tells us? Because God has given us this wonderful opportunity to get close to him. That's the reason to be Jewish. Right? That's, that's the whole purpose of it. God doesn't burn people in hell. That's Zeus. You understand? He's angry at Odysseus, so he sends out a lightning bolt and blows up the ship. You know what I mean? God doesn't do things like that. How this fits in with the concept of suffering, etc., that we're going to be talking about in uh, four weeks. But, five weeks. Uh, four weeks now. But, uh, <clears throat> but the point is that we have to make a decision for our children. And if we're going to ask them to be Jewish, we better give them something better than guilt. And if we want to be able to leave something important behind, we better decide what that is now. And that should be the reason to be Jewish. Thank you very much.